Welcome to The Tattooed Mind, a podcast where we explore the intersection of mental health, self-care, and the art of tattooing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing stories, insights, and inspiration from artists who have struggled and overcome obstacles in their lives and careers. I'm Mike Fisher Dubois, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Kylie Hewitt, tattooer out of Lexington, South Carolina, who shares with us her experience of addiction and recovery. Kylie spends a good portion of her energy today trying to build community with other addicts and help them to find hope and tools to aid them in their recovery. I'm honored to have her share some time with us and explore what she has learned through that process. My name is Kylie Hewitt. I have been tattooing for 16 years. I'm at Animated Canvas Tattoos in Columbia, South Carolina. Actually, scratch that. I just moved to our Lexington location. So I'm actually there, Lexington, South Carolina. Um, I uh, am already getting lost. So I was growing up in Ohio in a really small town. There was like maybe two tattoo studios throughout maybe a 50-mile radius. So uh, it wasn't super normalized there wasn't a lot of exposure to it other than like the tattoo magazines that we all had back in the day but um I was like 13 or 15 and I was supposed to be watching the training videos for volunteering at my sister's nursing home and instead of that in true me fashion I was sitting there doodling and one of the nurses aides came in and she said hey, that's a cool drawing. Do you think you could draw like a tribal butterfly? I want to get a tattoo. And I'm like, sure, I'm obviously qualified for this at, you know, 14 years old. Why not? And uh, so I drew it up for her. I gave it to her at the end of the day. And the next day she came in with that tattoo on her foot and I was like floored. I could not believe that something that I had created, which probably looked like shit, (laughs) you know, it was amazing. I was hooked at that moment, but I was like, I had tattoo artists put up so high on a pedestal that I thought, you know, I would never be cool enough. I'm just from little small town, Ohio. So uh, once I got older, I kind of started skipping school to go hang out at the tattoo and piercing studio. Um, Oddly enough, these two probably super upstanding gentlemen were more than happy to give me a free piercing for like every 10 underage people that I would bring in. We all just conveniently didn't have our IDs on us at any time. Um, So I ended up getting some piercings I was able to hide from my parents and luckily didn't find out until like I got into the industry that there was a lot of inappropriate, not necessary things that may have happened during that piercing process. So that was also my first experience with kind of seeing the creepier, stingier side of the uh, industry of tattoos and piercings but it did not deter me I pushed on um so there was like I said not a lot of tattoo shops around we were going to get tattoos here and there and I was asking about apprenticeships because I'd always been into art and nobody really wanted to have any um sort of competition so everyone was like wanting me to pay them over a thousand dollars and sign like a non compete can't open a tattoo shop within 60 to 70 miles can't work at one so on and so forth that just doesn't seem right to me so uh 
the guy I was dating at the time, his mom was super cool and she was an artist. So she helped him like buy me a tattoo kit off eBay. <laughs> I thought that was the right way to go. I kind of had this misunderstanding about bringing your portfolio when you want to get an apprenticeship. And I was like, cool to show them all the tattoos that I've done, not having any clue. Um, so, you know, that kind of took off strangely because it was a small town. So at one point I did like this absolutely terrible half sleeve on my male lady's husband. I don't even know who the guy was, but you know, it kicked off the love for everything. It was just overwhelmingly cool that I was able to do that. Um, so when I finally left Ohio, uh, which was ironically where the whole drinking thing started, I had had two DUIs and they were within like seven months of each other because I'd had two friends that had decided to unalive themselves. And that was my coping mechanism, which was totally normalized in my family. So um, I moved out of Ohio to just kind of get away from everything once my probation was up and went to Myrtle Beach, which was where I ended up finding an apprenticeship, someone that I had given another underqualified tattoo to, to had shown up at this shop. And they saw my work and they were like, hey, you know, give her our information. If you would like to have an apprenticeship, we'd be happy to offer you that. So I scooped up the opportunity because I was like, hell yeah, I don't want to be, you know, some scratcher in the kitchen all the time. Um, I was not tattooing in my kitchen just for just case shifts. Not that that makes it any better, but, you know, we all started somewhere. Uh, so anyway, I started there. They basically confiscated all my tattoo equipment and were like, we're not letting you you know, practice until we feel you've got some things under control due to bloodborne pathogens, all that. Also, side note, um, I don't know if you know anything about the legal history of tattooing in South Carolina, but it was not legalized until 2006. Here well, it was like 2004, the whole litigation thing started, but 2006 was when the first tattoo shop opened. So I came down here in 2007. They were still trying to get their shit together. Um, 18, 19 and 20 year olds, you had to still have your parent or guardian come sign for you. It was wild. Uh, so finally, in 2010, we were able to start tattooing 18 and up and everything kind of fell into place. Um, but in that time, I was more of like a paid counter help than I was an apprentice. When I went to uh, move back to South Carolina after a year in North Carolina, I contacted my old employer because we have to have a letter for the state health board here saying that we have our thousand hours, so on and so forth. And he responded with you really were just more of paid counter help that turned into a tattoo artist. You didn't really have an apprenticeship. So I was like, jazzy, man, that's cool. Uh, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, and we did. We were able to get one from my boss, so it worked out fine. So yeah, I've been here in Columbia for about 10 years now, and I have a great clientele, great relationship with my boss here. He was actually the one that kind of stepped in and got my head on straight a little bit better. Uh, the shop that I worked at for the last nine years was actually right above one of the most popular bars in the downtown area here in Columbia. So like within an hour of the shop being about to close, you know, we'd stop taking walk-ins and I would head on down there for my first shot, which was like a double of Rumpelmans and like every 20 minutes and they were super generous with the pours. So, yeah, it was just like a race to a blackout every night after work. And uh, it worked for a really long time. Somehow, some way I managed, but like I was not nearly in as good of a place as I thought that I was. Um, 
So at that point, uh, I was still under the impression that like to be an alcoholic, quote unquote, I don't really like that term. Um, but problem drinking basically consisted of getting up in the morning and having to drink because, you know, that was and that was where I drew my line. So I'm like, until I get to that point, there's I'm good. You know, we're solid. We're all tattooers. It's part of the culture. We're all drinking. It's fine. Um, and we got an employee discount because we worked above the bar. So that also was quite nice. Um, but anyway, so uh, until the day actually finally came where what I was blaming on anxiety attacks, I was I was shaking too bad to finish a tattoo and I just I freaked out and I went to one of my good friends and coworkers and I was like, hey, man. I'm just I'm having a panic attack. I can't I can't stop shaking and it's making me shake more. So can you just take over this tattoo for me? And I went and sat in the front office of the shop and I just had a meltdown and I, I briefly considered like, OK, maybe we start the day with a Bloody Mary, you know, until we get this figured out. And I'm like, I don't think that's the right way to go with it. Um, so eventually my my boss ended up having the whole intervention thing with me and was like, do you have a problem? I'm like, I think that might be where I'm qualifying at here. And so he gave me a recommendation to an addiction counselor and we were able to work things out and my moving to the new location has nothing to do with the bar being downstairs just for the side note there I've worked I've been sober for almost four years now and remained there but it actually provided a really cool opportunity for the transition that I'm working into now because there's something about being in recovery where you can kind of pick out fellow people in recovery from a mile away you know you just there's a sense about someone else that's had the struggles and you know it so I started to like get a feel when my clients were other people in recovery and I'm always an open book so it wasn't a problem for me to start bringing it up to people and through that I met clients who were also addiction counselors and therapists and worked through different organizations and also when I was leaving work and passing all my old drinking buddies and friends at the bar it slowly started turning into a few people here and there reaching out and saying, hey, we've noticed that you're not drinking, but you aren't miserable and you don't hate your life. If anything, you seem incredibly happy. What what are you doing? What's the secret? Because I feel like I might be a little bit out of control, but I don't really know how to go about this. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer this at all. I can only tell you what's worked for me and I don't even know if I'm doing it right. Um, so through one of my clients, she actually turned me onto uh, a certified peer support specialist, which is just basically a former addict or drunk who knows what they're talking about and gets a little more qualified to talk to people and support them through their journey. Uh, so I started with that. And when the pandemic hit, I had already taken back a little bit of my own time for mental health. So it just kind of all transitioned into part-time turned into school and now I'm a full-time student at University of South Carolina while tattooing part-time to get me through it. And hopefully in the next few years, I'll be qualified to be an addiction counselor. <laughs> That's pretty much where we're at now. That is so awesome. You have a ton in your story that I associate with. Uh, we talked about a, a little bit how similar we were uh, before we started recording. And wow, yeah, like very similar, a lot of the stuff that we've been through. Um, but I want to first just kind of touch on how when you get into recovery, it seems like 
everybody who takes their recovery seriously and really puts their all into it ends up having like no other choice but to share that with other people. Um, and you really nailed that when you said like you can just tell when you see someone who's in a good recovery. And now you are trying to be an addiction counselor. Um, so can you just talk a little bit more about like what in your life, in your heart, in your spirit drives you to want to help other people like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, basically, aren't we all as tattoo artists just kind of underqualified therapists that draw on people anyway? I mean, so it's kind of a bit of a natural transition. Um and it's really just that, like, I had so many people that were willing to unintentionally enable me by, you know, trying to justify the problem because there's still so much stigma around it, you know, and it's so easy to not see the negative sides of what other people are going through and be able to justify your own actions based off of what other people are doing. So I really was motivated by wanting to bring a normalization to just accepting the ability to reconsider your relationship with substances and know what works for you and what doesn't. And I think that's what recovery should be based off of. Um, I don't think that AA is uh, by any means a bad program. It works wonders for people. And without the foundation that I found there, I don't think I would be where I'm at. It gave me so much of a perspective on things, but also I need the ability to grow and make it personalized towards me. And um, when the pandemic hit, like I said, it was just not working as a tattoo artist. I started to realize that it wasn't really as much of a passion as I thought it was. And I was getting really passionate about the whole recovery scene, but like in the alternative recovery scene, not so much the 12 step program based uh, models of it and meeting other people that were also running programs like that, like the client that I had talked about. Um, it just, it made everything seem so possible. And then I tried really hard to deny it, but I was also, I'm going to be 40 in like a year and a half. So the back isn't happy anymore. I actually have a pulsatic nerve right now that I'm trying to deal with. And uh, health insurance, retirement, all of those things seem kind of important. And when you're not a shop owner and you're just an artist, you don't have a lot of control over that. So a little bit more of a nine to five based career, I guess, doesn't sound too bad if I'm changing lives. But um, so when I went and got that certification, I was talking about the peer support. Um, when I started looking for jobs, I wanted to be able to kind of keep something around the same salary that I've been used to for the last however many years. And um, everything was requiring a bachelor's degree and no part of me wanted to go back to school. I failed out of college twice back in the early 2000s because it was more about like, let's go play hacky sack until someone says, I have a joint who has a car. And I'd be like, it's me. I have the car. Um, so I off track there again. So yeah, no, no part of me wanted to go back to school and I was about to give up and South Carolina announced that they were doing a free tuition program for two-year uh, degrees. And I was like, I have no more excuses than school's going to be free. You can't really 
deny that. It all just seemed like the universe was just putting everything in my place and not giving me a choice. Like, it's like, you will be good at this. This is what you should be doing. You can reach people. So we're going to put all of these roadblocks, just push them to the side for you and give you no reason to get out of things because I'm an expert procrastinator and a great excuse maker. So (laughs) if I could have found a way out of it, I could, but nope, here we are. And I did way better than I thought I would at school. It turns out when you're actually passionate about something, you can apply yourself a whole lot better. So I impressed myself and decided to take it all the way. That's awesome. Um, I totally see um, where the universe really makes things that are supposed to happen, happen in people's lives. Um, A lot like you, you know, like I had this idea maybe six months ago now, it's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, and I was trying to figure out different ways to make it work and do this and do that. And then I was just so busy tattooing, um, you know, and I've got a new baby at home. So there was a lot of stuff that just wasn't allowing me to find the time to do it. And for better or worse, the last like three months, um, my appointments all fell off. Uh, a lot of people canceling, um, you know, the economy is just sort of weird right now. And I've had basically like an extra day every week to get to dedicate to doing stuff like this. Um, I mean, shit, even today it was because of a cancellation. That's why we can talk right now. Yeah. So, um, I I get that. And also like having that time off during the pandemic, I found a new love for like doing art that wasn't tattoo based because before it was just drinking and tattooing, drinking and tattooing over and over again. And I didn't have that like love or passion for just doing art outside of tattooing too. So I've also taken that and really enjoy doing that on my days off when I'm not doing schoolwork. Did you guys have lockdowns there? Did the tattoo shop shut down? Mm -hmm. We were out of work for, I want to say it was like the middle of March to the middle of July, I took a couple extra weeks just to be cautious. So I don't remember exactly when they let us, but it was June or July when I went back. So there was a solid few months there, but our um, shop owners set it up really nicely to where we were all covered with unemployment. And so we did not have to struggle at all. It was. That's really great. I, I hit my bottom during all that because we were down for three months in Illinois and yeah, that was that was the worst for not just me, but everyone else in my life. Um, you know, because of me, I was just a wreck. Uh, how are you like at keeping your head together through that? Because I mean, I don't I know a lot of addicts and a lot of people who slipped during that time and a lot of people who weren't clean, who just got way worse like I did. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll admit I definitely still smoked weed through the beginning of when I quit drinking and I think that was great for me and the whole having no medical detox for as much as I was consuming I think that harshness of like just a cold turkey everything would have probably set me into a much worse situation um and I I did get sober um it was September of 2019. So I had like a solid four or five months before all the real shit started hitting the fan over here. But to me, I I kind of turned it around and I don't know how, but I made it into like a haha moment. Like I've been sitting here not doing shit for months already. Now everyone knows what I have been feeling. So take it in and enjoy yourselves, everyone. 
now you can see that it's not that bad. You know, everything doesn't have to require alcohol to to do things. And also out of that was born. Um, I started a, a meetup group here in the city called Cola AF. Uh, which has double entendre because, you know, all the cool kids are saying AF these days, but also alcohol-free. Um, and it's a non-sobriety-based meetup group. We have over 500 members, which I never expected. I was like, I'll be lucky if like 30 people join. You know, that might be cool. And admittedly, I have not done as much with that lately as I'd like to being in school, but I've been upfront and honest with all the people in the group and let them know. And we've done things like bowling outings and had picnics and you know, just trying to get some kind of community together or ability to build friendships when you are going to that concert with people that you know are just going to be fucked up the whole time and you're just going to sit there. Then you have that someone that you've maybe met at an event that was like, oh, I remember they also enjoyed this genre of music or that band. I'm going to call them so I have a sober buddy to hang out with and create that sense of safety. But also getting out there and showing the general public that like this is what recovery looks like. This is what people who choose to not drinking for different reasons do. We're not just confined to our homes. And with the strength in numbers, when those awkward questions come up, why aren't you drinking? What was your rock bottom? Like people have no filter when they find out that you don't drink or partake in substances. It's wild the shit that they will ask you. So by having that sense of community there, um, I was hoping to facilitate something like that. And it was a little selfish too, because I was also feeling a little abandon you know you not necessarily lose a lot of friendships but you realize that there's a lot of superficial friendships when you're drinking because you everything has so much more emotion behind it you meet someone and five minutes later you're like I love you you're my best friend we're gonna have this super meaningful and it lasts for all the five minutes in the girl's bathroom until you're done washing your hands and you're back out and you know so um that was a lot of adjusting and I think the pandemic provided that chance for me to find enjoyment of being around myself again because I had no other choice. Like I started driving for Uber at first because I was still a night owl and didn't have anything else to do when I was off work. So I picked up all the drunk college kids and took them to the bars to remind myself. But that ended up turning into the one and only relapse that I had because then there was a slow night for Uber. And I'm like, well, I'll just go to one of the bars that I didn't tell to stop serving me. And then I'll show everyone how I can drink normal. And then when I make my grand debut back out to the world as this controlled normal drinker again, they'll see it was wrong. You know, uh, they weren't wrong. <laughs> they <laughs> narrowly escaped a really bad situation. And that was kind of my final wake up call where I was like, All right, you're out of luck. If you, you know, keep playing with fire, like you're going to absolutely get burned next time. And I did not want to end up in jail again. I did not want to end up you know, being out on the streets and having nothing left because I was on the verge of ruining my job, my relationship, you know, everything. What was it like finding yourself coming back? Like, uh, you know, because I think for me, I don't know if I actually have like a second recovery in, in my life, you know, um, so, like that just seems like I would feel so defeated. And you took that as motivation, not as defeat. Can you kind of describe like just what went on in your head to allow you to do that? Definitely. Um, I did not take it seriously the first time as much as I was trying to convince myself and others that I was taking it seriously. I had refused to go to AA. I was seeing the addiction counselor that my boss had recommended for me. 
and he was great. Everything was going well with that. Um, ultimately, what had happened, I took a trip back home to Ohio by myself where I was unsupervised. And that kind of just set me on a little spiral, got a hotel and went out one night and just woke up a hot mess, but still decided to, you know, keep trying. So I was I was just keeping it a secret. But then when that final thing happened and I realized like how lucky I had been because I had narrowly escaped a couple other DUIs where I had been leaving the bar slash work and gotten into little fender benders. And yeah, I just knew like it was a very like we are at that line now. If you cross this line, it's going to be a lot harder to come back. And also, I was really lucky to have a partner who is not a big drinker. He had had some alcoholism in his family. And so he was very willing to be supportive if I wanted to make a change, but also made it very clear that he was not willing to stick around for the damage and trauma that it would have caused him to stick around for that. It wasn't a selfish thing. It wasn't like a I need you to be a certain person for me. He needed me to be the me that he saw in me. And it was like absolutely one of the most important parts of it was having that and someone to build me up. And I was just uncomfortable with myself. I didn't know how to sit at home by myself. I thought my only identity was being social and out drinking, but it turns out I'm actually a lot more introverted and I enjoy gardening and having pets, <laughs> doing mm -hmm. things like that, you know. I do know. I Man, I was at the bar three, four nights or three, four, yeah, three, four hours a night, um, every night basically. And but I hated it. I don't know. Like, like right now you could not get me to go hang out with people for four hours. Like absolutely nothing in this world would make me want to go hang out with someone who isn't my wife or my daughter for that long. No, socialization is absolutely a wild concept to me now. The fact that people just like hang out and watch movies together feels so awkward to me if you're not someone that I like want to cuddle with while I do that yep. <laughs> like yeah there's a whole new meaning to you know, relationships and intimacy and all kinds of things as a sober person that you know you could shrug off or drink away or smoke away snort away whatever it was um so having to take the actual realities of life it's basically like being a baby giraffe all over again people don't realize that like your first airplane trip without being able to drink before you get on the airplane are you shitting me absolutely not that's wild it was not a fun time so you know <laughs> so it's so that. funny uh i hated flying hated it couldn't do it. it like it would ruin every trip if i had to fly i had to take a whole next day off got sober i don't have any problems flying anymore all of my anxiety is gone i can get on a plane no issues it Dude. turned out that that drinking before the plane was actually what was screwing up my flight. No, I still have it. I am yeah. still a hot mess on the way to the airport. Yeah. Um, but I'll do it. It's better than the 13 hour drive home to my, see my family. So Totally. <laughs> um, you know, so talking about the people in your lives and in, in our lives and the way we interact with them now. To me, it's really funny when you think back at like the people you were interacting with all the time and uh, how little it seemed like in my life. A lot of them have even noticed my just very immediate departure. You know, I think about all these people that I was seeing every night at the bar and, and for all a lot of them know I'm dead now. I mean, I was drinking enough to die and they haven't seen me since I quit drinking. 
Um, do you ever run into that disappointment in yourself about all this energy that you put forward into people that turns out was just completely gone? No, it's actually quite the opposite. My regret comes from thinking about how much I prioritized my need to drink over forming actual bonds with people that do matter to me, like my niece, my family back home. Um, there's so many missed opportunities that I was like, but I need to be at the bar tonight. So, uh, you know, I can't do that because I'll, you know, immediately go into a meltdown. My body knew like by seven o'clock if we didn't have alcohol in there. So nothing else mattered. And I didn't notice that for so long. But now that I can actually like be present and prioritize things, I just feel bad that I wasted all that time with those people. But what makes me feel even more sad is when I would still, I see those same people that are still in that place that haven't recognized that there's a pattern and an issue. And as we all know, you can't force anyone into recovery. So I think the best thing I can do is be open and honest about it with all those people and just show them, you know, sit there and drink my NA beer on a trivia night, like once in a very blue moon, just because I'll have a wild hair and feel like I need to go be social. And it, it lasts until people start slurring. And then I'm like, cool, I'm just going to back on out of here head on home to my dog and my boyfriend and hang out and you know it, that's a great thing also that you have is self-control and the ability to remove yourself from situations where you're no longer comfortable because when you take control over your addictions and your problem behaviors you realize that you can take control over anything like your life is what you want to make of it and it's only how hard you're willing to work not only in sobriety but in any situation that is going to project you to that next level or keep you stagnant totally you know and when you talk about like making your life and how hard you want to work to have the life that you want to have um a big part of that is those people that we do choose to surround ourselves with now which you talked about earlier how you kind of created this group because you selfishly for you needed a sober community that was willing and able to do stuff. Um, and I think that's something a lot of people, especially people in fresh recovery or who think they need recovery in their life, forget is that you don't necessarily have to find a niche that already exists. It's easier than people think to make one. It just takes the legwork. Um, yeah. It was yeah. really important for me to make it a very inclusive group. Also, um, I had initially been um, inspired by a lady I had listened to on a podcast that I was into for a while in early sobriety where she had spoke about a similar thing that she had started up in Charlotte, North Carolina, but hers was very exclusive, women only. There was a membership fee. It was very hoity-toity, and I'm like, this This is the South. We need to be able to bring everybody into this. We've got people in all walks of life here, and I don't want anyone to feel excluded. And uh, a big thing is there's so much social anxiety involved in it. So I tell people in the group, like, we are all there being very socially anxious. Like, I am putting on a huge hat slash mask every time I show up there to run these events and try to facilitate these friendships. And by the time I get home, I'm exhausted because that has taken everything out of me. But it also means so much to me to create that community that I'm willing to take that hit on my ability to function afterwards to try to make everybody feel comfortable and welcome and get the word out and just bring people together. 
It's amazing what you're doing with that because truthfully, the only thing that we really can do in our lives that has any lasting impact is like, it is how we treat other people, you know, so we can do that super negatively, but, uh, by ignoring our family and our good friendships, or we can do that super positively by, you know, giving people hope and giving people a place to really feel like they can interact as themselves and not as this like super masked fake version that they have to be that involves liquor usually, um, you know, cause we live in a society that's all about just like every social event has to have alcohol involved. So. I am on such a advocacy like fire for that in the way that like big alcohol is the same thing as big pharma and big tobacco and people don't realize that yeah that's a whole other podcast we could have a whole (laughs) conversation on um but yeah it's insane how it's just everywhere i mean shit you can't even go get breakfast without bottomless mimosas it's like they just want us to be fucked up from the time we wake up until the time we go to bed but you know what is great about facilitating a normalcy with uh, societal alcohol intake is that when everyone is so drunk, it's a lot easier for them to forget about those important issues that they want to stand up for. So, like, let's just dumb down society so that we don't have to let them have thoughts. They'll just be too hammered to think anything and we can get away with what we want to. So yep. I think there's definitely a... a deeper thing behind how much alcohol is advertised to us and how it how it's done and how it's based off of different marginalized people and trying to bring everybody in and also bring people against each other at the same time it's wild absolutely um have you gone through like facebook and youtube and a lot of those other social media things actually let you turn off alcohol and gambling ads Really, I haven't noticed that. I've tried to get the alcohol ads to turn off on Facebook. But then again, at the same time, I don't want to start ignoring the fact that it's all out there the way that it is to like every once in a while. But it just if anything, it makes me laugh. Like I remember, I don't know if you heard there was an orange juice company. I don't know if we're allowed to say names or not here. So we'll just say some OJ. Okay, so I think it actually I don't even know if it was. So maybe I shouldn't. It might have been Tropicana. But um, so they had this whole series of commercials like came out that had celebrities in them and they were like hiding vodka and orange juice in like the laundry basket and in their garage and they were basically like normalizing needing to go hide from your family in the closet and make yourself a screwdriver that's insane. <laughs> so naturally right and it's every you know recovery group was like no please stop this is hugely inappropriate we cannot be normalizing this like you are triggering so many people by doing this so they have ended up ended up pulling the ads and um issuing an apology for it but i think gabrielle union was one of the people that was featured in it and i don't remember who else but yeah it was a whole thing for a minute there when you talk about that normalizing stuff i remember as like a as a young teenager you know like 13 14 years old thinking that what grown-ups did is like grown-ups in like their 20s and 30s was go to the bar with each other after work every day. Like, cause that's what you see, you know, if you're watching, um, like how I met your mother or fuck any sitcom, you know, that's like, oh, we're going to meet up at the bar, you know, meet up in McLaren's later. And so to me, that was what like a normal, cool person did. So obviously when I, you know, am an adult, I've already got a bad drinking habit from being a kid, but now I'm an adult. I moved to the city. I'm getting to do these 
cool things. Of course, I think that like that's where I'm supposed to go. You know. Yeah, it was exactly that for me, and even more so. Um, so, like I said, small town in Ohio. We had one bar in town, and I literally grew up in that bar since I was in preschool. The owners of that bar, their son was in preschool with me, and they lived above the bar. There were apartments there, so it was like they had booths. And we would go in and sit at the booth, but then I would go and play Super Nintendo upstairs with the kid in preschool with me and my parents would drink. And then it was only like a two mile drive down the road. And this is like the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. So DUIs still were the thing where like you got pulled over, the cops would just follow you home, little slap on the wrist, no big deal. So it never seemed abnormal to me. That was everyone's coping mechanism. And um, I remember like one of the, like monumental core memory things uh back in the day I was having a bonfire we always had big bonfires and I'd had friends over and my parents were drunk and my friends would all think that it was funny and it was to an extent but for me having to deal with it more often I didn't think it was funny so at one point I took my parents aside and I said hey I really you're embarrassing me and I don't think that I deserve that and they were like, well, we deserve it because we've been working hard all day. So we deserve a drink. So I'm like, okay, so drinks are rewards. So there were so many things that just made it all seem like this is just what normal people do. And it never made me think twice. And it was literally just that pivotal moment of the the shaking and the all the things that was finally it up until then. Even when I did voice to people like, do you think I need to go to rehab? Because I've like told myself three nights this week that I'm not drinking today, but here I am you know, waking up in the morning, throwing up on my feet in the shower, doing it all over again. And it was just a miserable existence. But I was like, this is normal. This is how people are supposed to do things. Everyone else is doing this exact same thing, but they weren't. I was just too drunk to notice. Oh, I hope it's the drunk as me. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I get that. Well, and especially tattooers, right? Because you're supposed to be cool too. You know, it's not just that you know, everyone's doing it, but you're also supposed to be like the coolest fucking person ever or no one will want to get yes. tattooed by you. Yeah, I thought tattoo artists, like I said, were on some pedestal. And so there had to be the party. You had to be out there. And that's how, you know, you got your name out there. That's how word of mouth happened. You go pass out business cards at the bars and talk to people about tattoos. And I was like, I just want to drink and not do tattoo consultations. Why does this become a thing every time I'm out at the bar? But um. Yeah, it was definitely even uh, my coworkers, I would say, like, I think, you know, I'm drinking a little too much. Like, ah, it's just it's part of the lifestyle that we live. You know, it's what we do. The, the old fashioned safety meeting where you head out back of the shop with anyone who's not tattooing at the time and pack a little bowl and have a good little laugh and then go back in and the whole shop smells like a skunk. But it's OK. We're professional. Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, th there are a few people out there that can get away with doing that and live totally normal lives outside of it, you know? So I, I'm not like trying to diss on the safety meetings. Oh, I'm but, not either. But, you know, it's just for me, the drinking was just as normal as the weed smoking. And, yeah. you know, the, the places that I was drawing the lines for myself were just not consistent. It got, <laughs> got blurrier and blurrier. Yeah, yeah exactly. Until there were no lines. I had a similar experience many times to your anxiety, um, not being able to, you know, finish the tattoo. Like I, I always called things panic attacks. And I think that I see people now who will say that they're having panic attacks at work. And the first thing that comes to my head is usually, well, 
you know, how, how many whiskeys did you have last night? You know, are, are, are you sure that it's a panic attack and not that you took three Adderall before coming into work? Right. Um, yeah, but, um, shit, I, I had something else to finish that off with. You're good. I can chime in for a second with that. Yeah. So, um, I did end up getting, I went to a psychiatrist before I quit drinking, um, who prescribed me Xanax, which great combination with <laughs> yeah. those double shots of Rumplemans every night. It worked out so well. Um, but it did turn out that I, I do have an anxiety disorder, but I was able to keep it mostly controlled with like cognitive behavioral therapy kind of things for a while. But then when I went back to school, it all came rushing back again. And I started having those same feelings like I did back when it was just hangovers. So it was nice to know that there was some level of validity there with it, but it was all very induced by that hangover situation back then. I just now I can recognize what it is a lot more. Totally. Yeah. I So I don't actually deal with anxiety like hardly at all, but I have terrible depression. Um, and that's something that now in sobriety, I actually know is like a real thing that I deal with, but I also know how to deal with it now. And I try to deal with it now, um, you know, in healthy coping ways, as opposed to just figuring out how much whiskey I can get into me. Um, yeah, for sure. The The coping mechanisms are such an important thing to talk about because people don't realize that they're using substances as coping mechanisms or, you know, chronic dating and just using people. There's so many different ways that are coping mechanisms that people don't realize. So like the mental health aspect of it ties so much into the addiction aspect of it. And it's all so incredibly relative and so rampant in our industry. But we have that whole, we got to be cool. We can't, you know, but luckily I've been lucky enough to in the last shop that I've worked at for the last 10 years, like everyone there is very pro mental health, pro, you know, bro let's talk it out for the most part. And um, so I did feel like there were definitely people that I could go to. Like I showed up right before I ended up getting back on meds again for my anxiety, looking like a wet cat that just crawled out of the sewer because I had a panic attack on my way into work. And I thought I was going to pass out, but I'm like, just get to the parking lot and you will be fine. And they were all cool and just let me like vent my frustrations about how I was convinced that that sinus headache was going to be an aneurysm that killed me on the way to work. And, you know, it's just it's wild to be able to sit through those emotions now and know that there's better ways to console myself rather than drinking it away because you sober up and it comes back and you still have to do it. So you might as well just take care of it. Yeah. Yep. That's I think that's something a lot of people who aren't in recovery don't quite realize is usually your addictions aren't like actually what your problem is. It's just how you're expressing them. It's a symptom. Um, you know, so yeah, you get sober, you still got all those same issues. You know, you still have my depression or your anxiety. You still have a bad workplace environment or you still have a bad home life you know there's all these things that still exist and drinking might have been making them worse or drug use might have been making them worse but it definitely doesn't get rid of them to stop doing that thing but no. it does it does give you the ability to actually take a plan of attack at them though um, for sure yeah because i can't tell you how many times like i i would be like oh i'm gonna fix this thing in my life I'm going to take care of this thing in my life that's causing me problems. And then what did I do? I, I started drinking or, you know, I, I went and did something and I totally forgot that I was going to actually take care of stuff. 
Yeah, see, I grew up very spoiled and enabled, so I had no actual realistic view of how the world worked. So for me, it was more like, I'm not doing anything bad. Why isn't better things happening for me? Why, you know, and that, again, that stagnancy and just blaming everything else, like, well, if this could change, if this could change. And it sounds so cliche and stupid, but like, had I not quit drinking, then I could not have changed any of those other things. It's not like it magically happened. The alcohol went away and opportunity just fucking rained from the skies for me. Like, that's unrealistic. There was a lot of self-work that needed to be done there, but it was so much easier to do that when I was being real and honest with myself and being able to focus those priorities on better things. And like, yeah, I'm a hermit now who just sits at home and reads and does homework. But in five years, I'm hoping I'll be able to have that master's degree and do all the great things. And I don't think I'll ever fully give up on tattooing. Like that's definitely like ingrained in my soul at this point. It was lifelong dream. You know, 13 to 15 year old me would be insanely stoked to know that I had accomplished it. But I don't think she would have known that there was going to be such a climb to get there yeah. so you're you're gonna get out of tattooing sort of uh you think you're gonna still keep working on it though yeah i feel like i've developed some really loyal clientele that i fully expected to like show up with torches outside of the studio when i announced that i was even going part-time and seeking a different career so um They've been so loyal to me that I would feel terrible taking that away from them. Like they don't go to anyone else. And I love that. That means the world to me. Um, so my clients are still important. I also tend to get bored and tattoo myself a lot where I can reach because I'm impatient and it doesn't hurt as bad when I do it. So I'll always have my equipment for that reason. But um, yeah, I think probably, you know, like once a month, ideally, I would love it if there's some way I could do like a combo office and call it tattoo therapy and like have my counseling services and then the other room on the other side. But the way our laws are here, we can't even have tattoos and piercings in the same place. So I don't see them allowing that to be a thing. But dreaming big, that that would be the main goal would be to still keep doing both. Um, but it's very... I'm very grateful that tattooing provides the ability to work our own schedules and still make a good amount of money that like a different part-time job would not allow me the ability to like stay up. Well, let's not lie. I'm not staying up on the mortgage. The boyfriend will listen to this and we can't <laughs> take away the credit from him. He's holding us up mostly financially, but I'm still able to not be behind on bills and things because of tattooing. So, um, but yeah, it, tattooing has both served me the ability to drink as much as I wanted, but also the ability to get my shit together and still stay doing the thing that I initially loved the most. You know, it's really amazing what a blessing tattooing can be when you do have that clear mindset, you know, because it, it totally is what allows us to be complete pieces of shit, too. Yeah, you're getting handed a pile of cash every day and you're just like, cool, it doesn't really matter what I spend this on because I'm going to get another pile tomorrow. Isn't that the truth? What do you notice in like the quality of the tattoos that you're putting out now? So I think now my focus is a lot more on the client experience than, well, I don't want to say than the tattoo itself, but I'm, I've kind of taken back um, 
I don't do as many big color pieces just because I know that they take a lot of time and I'm so part-time now. So I'm more into that. I'm glad that the whole minimalist whip shading style is cool now because that's quick and easy and I can, you know, do big pieces in smaller amounts of time and um, everybody likes that. So it's great word of mouth when they see that too. Um, now I'm doing what you did and getting fully off track <laughs> there. Where were we at? Um, I mean, how has it helped your tattooing being sober? Yes, there we go. So I am more considerate of the fact that, you know, this is what I come and I do every day. So I know how to make myself comfortable and that becomes a routine for me. Now it's more about making the client comfortable, making sure that like they feel that they're the things that they want in their tattoos are of value to me. I'm not just going to draw whatever I feel, you know, I, we went to mostly email consultations. Um, so that's been interesting to try to get people's ideas from words and pictures on paper or on the screen onto paper. But uh, I think it's just given me more of a ability to connect with my clients because I can be open about things and I'm also not hungover and nursing that the whole time and trying to just stay focused. Like I, I had a bit of a, a reputation for not being the friendliest person back then but i think now i am probably one of the most kind people that get greeted or greet the customers when they come in um it's it's brought me a long way into being a much better person towards my clients and i think that shows in the fact that i have so many people that are loyal to me which i appreciate that's awesome yeah i i think that that's one of those things that across the board not even just as tattooers but just in general in life, I notice in everybody I see who gets sober is that they just care about other people more. Um, you know, addiction's a disease of selfishness. And, you know, when you break those ties to yourself like that, you know, your overinflated ego, it just becomes such an amazing opportunity to really connect with others. So absolutely. I um, couldn't agree more. Let's see. We're getting 50 minutes here. Let's uh, get you a couple more just like cool answer questions and then we'll cool. start wrapping you up. All right. Um, let's see. Let's since imagine you're talking to somebody right now who they're really think they're at a bottom um, and they just don't know how to get themselves out of it. What do they do? I mean, I would focus on what their strengths are first and find out, you know, what what means something to them and then ask them, okay, so how are the decisions that you're making affecting your ability to be present and focus on those things that are important to you? And that's usually a great way to get people to kind of start reassessing their relationship with a substance or a negative behavior is just like, okay, so you can see that this isn't necessarily working out well for you. So what do you think an alternative would be? Do you think you can keep up that lifestyle and make things better? Or do you think that's the area where we need to make those adjustments? And then what is going to be of interest to you that's going to help you get to that next place? It's not, there's no cut and dry one thing you know 12-step programs are great a lot of people can't see beyond the religious aspect of a lot of them there's different things out there like smart recovery and there's one other one that i can't think of right now but um 
But just peer support is a great thing because you're not really getting therapy. You're just getting support. You're talking to someone who's been through it before. So I think that's a great place for people to start. And then they'll have resources and they'll have options to give you and kind of work through what your strengths and interests are and give you a personalized plan that can help you get to a better place. What was important to you that you just weren't being able to grab? I don't even think I knew at the time, but now looking back, I would say just self-acceptance. Like I thought I had everything else under control, but what I was doing was just running away from myself. It made me so uncomfortable. I couldn't even sit at home to watch TV by myself. Like my partner and I had very opposite work schedules for the first few years of our relationship. So I would come home after work. We'd have a quick dinner together. He would go to bed and I'd be like, cool, I'm going right back out to the bar. And for a while that worked. So I thought I was, you know, getting away with it. And so I think, yeah, just being able to sit with myself and accept myself and rediscover myself, I completely was just lost in drinking was my personality. That was my being. And then, you know, I was the tattoo artist during the day, but now I can be an aunt to my niece who's super important to me. I can be a great partner to my boyfriend. Um, I was bestowed my lovely dog. Uh, I have been saying as soon as I hit a year of sobriety, I needed to get a dog because I was completely incomplete without having a canine companion. And then it was like somewhere around 20 days before my one year soberversary I um, was driving down the road and I looked on the railroad tracks and there was this puppy just crawling on railroad tracks and so I stopped and picked her up and three years later she's still <laughs> my dog so I felt like that was a little gift of like confirmation from the universe like all right you've achieved some things so you can keep going and that's been a really great motivator ever since like it was just proof you know that you get back what you put into things and I had put in all of that effort and self-improvement work that I finally got something that was really going to mean something to me deeply beyond, you know, drinking in return. I love it. Yeah. There's, there's powers out there that we can't control. And that's, uh, that's proof of that. How do people find you if they want to get work done by you or they just want to chat, they want to maybe someday get therapy from you? Yeah, sure. So I am just really bad at social media, but I do have them all and I occasionally check them. Um, emails through our website, uh, Animated Canvas Tattoos. My Instagram is Tattooed Unicorn Arts and just Kylie Hewitt. If you search me, there's not a lot of me's out there, so I'm pretty easy to find usually with a different hair color. 